This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live, face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. To find out more about NoCD, visit NoCD.com to book a free 15-minute call. We're hot. We're fun. We're crying. But we're trying. We've got books. We've got books. Also, we're sad. Sad girls who read. Today, we have Haley Jacobson, bisexual icon, Brooklyn writer, an OCD girly, who is talking to us about her debut novel, Old Enough, that hits stands on June 20th. Hi, Haley. We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Before we get into everything, have you been a sad girl this week, Haley? I have been a sad girl this week. I am PMSing. It is that time. And I always just get a little down, a little inside myself. But I know that in a few days, everything will look different outside and in my heart. (laughs) In my heart. But like when you're in the thick of PMS, because I'm in it too, doesn't it feel like for me, it's like, I'm never not going to feel this way. Yeah. It's like, I have to spend the entire month prepping not to gaslight myself. Like like, (laughs) when it hits, don't believe it. Like it's going to be fine. Crazy. Especially when you have such a big thing around the corner, like, you know, literally next week. And and also obviously because I have OCD, like I want, I I want it that just right feeling. Like I have to have a certain feeling when my book comes out, you know. So like anything that could possibly get in the way, like my menstrual cycle, I'm like it's over, it's done for. But I've been I I sent a lot of messages to myself in the beginning of the month that was like you're gonna be fine, you're gonna make it through. Just that's something you do. You actually send yourself messages because I've heard of people doing that I mean this could just go right into like ERP stuff but like I have an app on my phone called yap and it just tells me my intrusive thoughts all day long I love that it's like supposed to be for positive affirmations but um I just use it to scare the shit out of myself (laughs) that's amazing I need to do that I feel like it's really awesome though that you're able to talk about not feeling like totally excited and great right now with the, you know, release of your book coming up, because I think especially living with OCD, like we want to feel amazing all the time. And I think we think that we should never feel anxious or sad about things that are good too. And you're giving everyone permission to have whatever feelings arise, which is going to be a lot of them. Yeah. Especially because publishing moves at a glacial pace. So I've been in this process for two years now, not including writing the book. So even though, yeah, it's next week, like I have had two years of seeing like how I need to regulate my like emotional and psychological well-being because it's not any different this week than it was six months ago when I was having bad days thinking about my book coming out. It's this, it's the same, right? Just the way that OCD is the same. Like it's maybe a different texture, but it's always like, (laughs) it always comes back to the, like the greatest hits. So 
I kind of just have to like eye roll at myself a little bit. I think what's hard is like, I'm so glad that I was coming on your podcast today because, you know, we all know each other, but it is hard to have to like be on for strangers. Like I'm really glad that I had interviews last week and not this, like not this part of the week, because I think that pressure would be a lot. It is a lot. And it can almost feel like living a double life. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but when my OCD is really bad, which like I had a spike over the last two weeks and I have to do like interviews and whatever else I'm doing. I literally feel like I'm like watching myself live this life, but I'm feeling a different life internally. Yeah. A thousand percent. And it's like, you're living a double life and you have the acknowledgement that you're living a double life. So you're like in your head being like, and it's happening right now. And that's (laughs) exhausting. It's like, you're juggling so many things at once because you know, like pre-diagnosis, you're, you don't know that you're doing such a thing. You think it's all you, all one thing. And then you're like rats. Like (laughs) I have to like bring in my tools. I have to hold all these parts of myself and I have to be present. It's ridiculous and stupid. And so hard. So hard. I think the piece of having guilt on that you should feel a certain way Like I should be enjoying the press. I should be enjoying, this is the best week of my life. Like I've been there where I was doing a big project and my OCD was the highest it's ever been. And I was like, something's wrong with me. Why am I not enjoying it? I think the guilt piece adds to like all of the other emotions that are already swirling. Yeah. I don't know how I would have like done any of this if I didn't have my ERP tools, because like, this is obviously, you know, OCD attacks milestones, right? So like, this is one of the largest milestones of my life. So I feel like if I had gone into this, like, just like raw dog, this experience, no ERP, I think I would have been so devastated for so much of it because I would have been like, wait, you're on the other side of your biggest dream. Like you should be feeling this way and this way and this way. And because I have my tools, I'm like, that I can't, all of all feelings are fleeting. What am I going to do? Like, yeah, I am excited. And some days I feel like on top of the world. And then some days, um, I really don't. And I feel self-conscious and I have a lot of doubt, but the good thing about ERP is like, it just tells me that like nothing, neither is more valid. Right. It's like, I wrote the book. That was the value. I did that. So, and now the book's coming out. <laughs> I love that. We love ERP. We are ERP girlies. And I love what you said. I think like one of the most important things you said is don't gaslight yourself, especially living with a doubting disorder. Like OCD right. can literally feel like your own personal gaslighting all day long. All day. Yeah. True. Icon, icon, icon. Okay. So first question is when did you start writing this? Like, I know, like you said, publishing moves at a snail's pace. It's yeah. two years just to get this published. So what has the writing process been like for you? So old enough has, uh, moves between two perspectives. It moves between 16 year old Savannah, who's the protagonist of the story and 19 slash 20 year old Savannah. Um, everything that exists as specifically age 16, I wrote in 20, I want to say 2018 and I put it to the side. It's probably like 40, 50 pages in total. If that I shelved it, I didn't know what that was going to be, but, um, I knew it was important. 
And then not really when the pandemic hit, but like maybe six, eight months into it, I was like, oh, it's time. Like it's time. Let's, let's do this. And then I really buckled down and I wrote, um, I wrote the rest of it and put it all together in about six months. So 2020, I think, I don't know. Time is so weird. That's that's insane. That's very cool. I had a dream. I had a dream. You heard it here first. I feel like when I hear about, like, at least like when I think about like writing my book, like my agents will say, like, you have nine months to do six months. Haley, that is wild. It was wild. And I don't know that that will happen again. You know, I don't know that it will. It, it was it, that that was this book. It really once I once I knew what it was, because, you know, those first 40, 50 pages, I didn't know what they were going to be a part of. And once I did, I was able to, like, really see the finish line and and just kind of chug along. And um, it was it was crazy, but it was it felt really good. I also like it was such a steep learning curve for me of finding the ability to sit down and write for long periods of time um, to get like to a specific word count. And I really needed to prove to myself that I could do it. Like I was very scared that I, that I had lost that like mental ability to like truly long form. write. Um, and so that was also part of it. It was like a challenge. Now that you've done this and you've proven it to yourself, now does that open up so many doors? You're like, oh, I can fucking do it. I'm going to write a million books. I think so. Yeah. I have no doubt in my ability to like write more books, like the actual process of writing a book. Um, you know, I just get, I get in my head about like, you know, what what is it that I want to write next? But I think that's, all the like cerebral thinking part of it. And then when it gets down to actually doing the creative thing, hopefully that won't be so much of a concern. But yeah, I think because this process is so slow publishing is so different than what I've done on social media for so long. It's just been such an amazing sort of like life lesson for me of like what I what skills I value and patience is, is a huge one. And you, you have to be patient to write 300 pages. You just do. So, and I know like, yes, I wrote it in six months, but I also like, I did have the luxury of like, I mean, luxury, no, it's, it was the pandemic. So not a luxury <laughs> at all, but like, I really wasn't doing too much else. So I really got to like live in the world of my book um, for a long time. Well, now I feel some sort of way like Haley wrote a book during the pandemic. Allegra, what did we what did we do? Well, <laughs> actually, my pandemic was wild as well. <laughs> I got licensed in two states, opened a business. Wait, okay, I'm gonna go keep myself out. I Aaron's didn't know like, I'm all. gonna jump out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, never mind. You both are overachievers. Uh, thank you. I feel like maybe like Haley, I don't know if you feel this way, but in my like, first of all, I hated the pandemic. I'm not at all saying like there was a silver lining, but for me, like I got to see my clients virtually. I got to move to New York and like the pandemic gave me the space to do so. So I found that like my business thrived during the pandemic, which 
maybe it does for writers too, but I, I, that's obviously not what everyone else experienced by any means. I just had a career path that let that be the case. Yeah. I think the first six months were pretty horrendous for me because that's when I got diagnosed with OCD. So I got hit by that, like so, so hard, which makes perfect sense. Like I was running from my OCD from age 20 to 28. So um, the second thing slowed down, it was like, here I am, you know? And I think that writing my book was like part of my healing from my diagnosis and also the, the extremely hard work that I was doing in ERP. Like it was a, it was a gift that I, that I like needed to give myself, you know, um, cause I was still like reeling from all that. So it, you know, it was, it was so many things at once, but I, but I do see me coming back to life when I decided to to write my book. You know, I think I felt really lost before that. I also want to, before we go to the next question, acknowledge that I'm pretty sure Allegra, I found your Instagram because of Haley's Instagram. <laughs> and wild. Haley, Haley also was posting about OCD and I've had anxiety and depression since I came out of the womb, but I didn't realize I had OCD until a few years ago as well. And I want to thank Haley for like no other account besides yours, like, but I hadn't seen your account yet, uh, acknowledges and destigmatizes OCD. So like, these are my two OCD, like original OCD girls. Like it I'm very blessed amazing. to know. Yeah. It's Aaron, really that's amazing. so cool. It's like so full circle. Right. It's really full circle. That's cool. wild. Okay. Haley, why did this book choose you or why did you choose this particular book as your first book? I have always known that my first book was going to be about a survivor finding healing. It was always going to be a book that did a deep dive into uh, sexual violence and what it is to be a survivor now. I also knew that my book had to exist when there was a lot more literacy around consent this is not a post a pre me too book. This is a post me too book through and through. So I knew I had, I, that's also part of why I waited. So, so that, that was always, you know, the foundation I've realized like in doing these interviews and talking about it, like I'm very much a themes first writer. And, and, and that means like, I kind of make a list of all the things that I would like to talk about. And then from there, I put a story together. So I wanted to address like the difference between justice and healing. I wanted to explore bisexuality within, you know, a larger queer group dynamic. I wanted to explore girlhood. Like these were all themes that I'm sure if I look in my notebook, I have a list of everything and kind of one by one, I check them off as the story unfolded and 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 grew but that was the the big one that i started with and i think this book chose me because it's the book that i have been looking for my whole life you know this is the book that i didn't have so i didn't really have any other choice but to write it i think that and when like thinking about asking that question of like 
why did this book choose you? I was talking to Krista and she kind of said that same thing to me last week. Like she said, why did your book like choose you? And I thought like, it just is such an interesting question, but like you said, like, this is your story, you know, this is life experience that you've had. And like, you are healing so many by doing this. I just think it's so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't write a novel like y'all, but I wrote a one woman show and it really does feel like it's just like coming out of you and it needs to come out and you wish you had that. And it it's like your, your Bible or whatever you believe in. I'm a Jew. So I don't, okay. Anyway, but did you ever feel Haley or Allegra, both of you, scared to tell your story like scared you would be judged scared that people would not receive it well like how how does that feel releasing a book into the world like that well I think you know there's a couple different parts to that one I wrote a fiction novel for a reason right you know when you when you write fiction it's it's so that you can infuse themes that are interesting to you from your life into a world that is not real a world that might look like ours and obviously can have elements of our own experience but it was it was a choice to write fiction and i think part of that is because while i am a survivor and i am a bisexual woman people aren't entitled to my real and true story and it's you know a thousand percent authenticity. Um, but I certainly love to write about that story. Um, and so I decided to do it through other characters and through experiences that were not mine. But then also I do write about myself and about my life on the internet. And I have for a very long time. And the reason I don't feel scared is that as a survivor, you know, one of the things that I think all survivors share is that at one point or another, we didn't have a choice. And so every time I choose to share something about myself, I know that that's coming from my absolute autonomy and it's my decision and it's my story to share. And I think so many survivors feel like their story gets told for them. So what's scarier to me is to have anybody else in charge of my own narrative. So if I'm the one in charge of it, if I have that autonomy, that reclamation of body and voice and power, then I always feel better. That's iconic. Yeah. I was scared to say something the other day, like say my truth, stand up for myself. And my therapist was like, you are your best advocate. I'm like, you're fucking right. Like, yes. Like, and that's what you guys do when you write about yourselves, when you're so open about yourselves, like you are advocating for yourself and you're making other people feel like less alone. And it's, it's iconic. Like seriously. (laughs) Why was it important Haley to write a queer coming of age story? Like, obviously you are a bisexual icon. Why was this important to you? Did you have that growing up? Do you see yourself in SAV? Tell us about your queerness. Big question. So as it, you know, as I mentioned, I had these like 40, 50 pages shelved and I knew that I wanted to, um, you know, really create a story that was not bigger than those 40 pages, but that felt like a real story motivated by a plot and an arc and that those would be flashbacks in, in a sense 
So I was like, what the fuck am I going to write, you know, in the present, what is happening to, to this woman? What, what is she going through? What's going on? And I had some ideas that had been floating around for a while. And then I took this class called joy first writing. It was a quick six week workshop with a fantastic teacher and author named A.E. Osworth. And it was just for queer and trans writers. And really all we were assigned to do was write whatever brought us joy. And I started writing about queer people at college and a diverse queer community and all these characters that started to just jump out in my mind. And I was having so much fun writing about them. And I wasn't out in college and I didn't go to a a campus kind of school. I was in a city. I went to theater school. I didn't go to any normal classes. Like I didn't have any of that, but I always sort of fantasized about it. Um, And so I started writing writing this world. Um, and I thought how interesting would it be to center it around a gender and sexuality studies class? Because as it says in old enough, it is sort of a prerequisite for queer people to take such a class. And what would it be like to explore the dynamics of consent and, um, and sexual assault within that class with this cast of characters? But really it came from just this very joyful place. And I look at it now and I realize that like, if I was ever going to write a book about sexual violence and healing, what better way to heal? How, how do people heal? How did I heal without community? Community has always been what brought me back to life and brought me back to myself, my truest self. And it's queer community that did that. Um, the people that I have in my life now post coming out, um, the people who really truly see me all parts of me. And so even though it wasn't my college experience, and even though these characters are not, you know, people that I have in my life, but maybe there's, you know, elements of them, of course, I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be so beautiful for this protagonist to enter into this like really cool liberal arts school with all of these queer people and come out and come into herself and and through that integration, like realize what had happened to her and also find a way through. Because to me, the way that my identities as a bisexual woman and as a survivor intertwine are like never ending because both identities were not modeled properly to me as I grew up. I never saw a bisexual woman who is the bisexual woman that I am today. I am not promiscuous or sneaky or greedy. I don't exercise my sexuality for men. It's an, it's it's my expansiveness as a sexually fluid person is is as beautiful as it is very serious and very adult. It has nothing to do with sort of a wild experimentation. And certainly my identity as a survivor was never modeled to me because 
it didn't happen in a park late at night with a hooded stranger. And when we were growing up, the idea of a gray area and, you know, sort of a muddled experience and if alcohol was in the mix and what were you wearing and all of those things. And, and as, you know, all the things that Sav questions in herself throughout the novel, those are certainly the questions that I had too. And so it took me so long to come out as a survivor and as a gay person because none of it was there. And so my queerness and my identity as a survivor, they they really like go hand in hand in so many ways. So to to write a book in which most of the people are queer just made a lot of sense to me when writing a protagonist who is trying to integrate all parts of herself, including her trauma. I just want to say thank you for sharing that with us. I think God, your vulnerability is just so wonderful. And this book healed me so, so, so much. Um, two things before we get into something more serious. Number one is I feel like I get gayer by the day. I literally sit here and Google like gender and sexuality studies classes because I never got to take one. I've called Columbia. I look at Hunter College. I'm like, do I go back and get like another master's? Like, I just feel so validated in my fucking queerness. I've always wanted to take one of those classes. So when I opened up your book and it was like set in a class like this, like, okay, cool. I'm kind of like getting to take this class. Amazing. Number two is just, I have never seen a book that touches on, like you said, the gray areas of assault. It's either been black, it's been white. And I've disclosed on this podcast a bit about my own experiences and my experience as a survivor was similar to Sav's in the book. Like it wasn't this, like I was held down in a field and it's very, very black and white and it's very clear. And what was so hard for me at the time, I was, it was 20 years old is one of my roommates said to me at the time, like, this doesn't count. I was held down in a field. You weren't, you chose to drink, you chose X, Y, and Z. This doesn't count. And I was sitting in my living room with like six other roommates, like, wow, I, I, it, it was unreal to me. And then another roommate spoke up and said, well, one time I like woke up blacked out in a closet at a frat house and like, yeah, I don't remember it, but like, that isn't assault. So, like literally eight years ago, we didn't have these conversations. No, we didn't. We didn't. And that this book healed me in so many ways. Cause even as I go to write my book, I'm like, can I call it assault? Like it's so clearly assault, but to this day, I'm like, can Mm -hmm. I do that? Yeah. So I think so many people are going to see themselves in this experience. I hope so. That is why I wrote this book, you know, like that's the underbelly of this book of like, if you didn't want to do it, it counts. That's it. Like end of story. It took me so long, so much longer than Savannah to get to that place. And it's, you know, I find a lot of freedom in finally just identifying as a survivor, you know, and I think, I hope what comes across in my book is that every survivor gets to exist within that identity, however they choose, right? It all comes back to choice. Um, And so while I live very, very loudly and my, you know, activism and, and platform is used in so many ways to elevate the voices of other survivors as well as my own. I don't think that anyone has to do that, right? Like that, that is absolutely just what feels good and right to me. But I do hope 
in reading this book, even if you're never going to talk about it with anyone else, um, even if you're just going to hold that close, just reading this story and knowing that like at least one person and I am that person says like without a shadow of a doubt, it counts that I hope that I have like, that's why I wrote it. I wrote it for them. And I wrote it for me. I wrote it for me. It had to have been so healing for you. Not that it is healing. I think that kind of like, I mean, of course there's healing, but that leads into our next question about like justice versus healing, which was just so powerful and so insightful. Haley, like I was reading this at Rockaway beach, like screaming, my friend next to me was like, what's happening? (laughs) But it was just so damn insightful. It was so good. So the justice piece, like blew both of our minds. We texted each other about it. We're like jaw on the floor. So Sav is saying that we focus too much on the perpetrator and not on the survivor. Tell me about that. Like that is the book. Like that, that's, that is what I set out to write. I said, I'm going to write a book about the difference between justice and healing. I've been saying that for like eight years. That's the book. So like, it's just even amazing that we're having this conversation because like, you both get it. Like you get what I set out to write. Like I for so long couldn't come into my identity because I thought if I say this, if I say that what happened to me was rape, then I have to go do something about it, you know, or, or that, you know, I should have done something about it at the time, right? Like this idea that the first instinct after we have been traumatized after our bodies have been violated, that we should go re-traumatize ourselves by seeking out the law. What, like, what is that? And what does that mean? And how quickly that takes the light away from us and shines it onto the abuser. And then it becomes all about the abuser for the rest of the time. And sure, of course, for some people that that's what they need, you know, they need a jail cell and a key and to lock someone away. But we know, unfortunately, sadly, it is so rare that our abusers actually do get locked away. It is so rare that we even get a fucking trial. And so if that's not the option for many of us, and that's also not the kind of healing that I ever wanted to do, what is the other option? And why don't we talk about it enough? So I wrote the book, you know, (laughs) it almost is like there is no other option presented to you. Right. Eight years ago, I had to go to the, I mean, I went to urgent care, which was like slash gynecologist, fucking traumatizing, absolutely horrible after I had just experienced all of that. And then my boss was like the one adult I confided in. And she said, go like, let's go to the police. And I'm not even ashamed to admit this. Like I was blacked out. I don't know what the guy, I don't know. I don't know anything. Like, what am I? So I was like, wait, I'm supposed to go to the place and talk about this thing that like, I don't even know who he was. And that's my only option right now. There's not like therapy. There's not like, there's no other recommendation, but go to the police, go to the, it's just, that can't be, that can't be enough. It just can't. And I don't know that it's anything. I don't know. I don't. I mean, and, you know, obviously you're a therapist, but having the knowledge that we have about bodily trauma and PTSD, 
how is going to, first of all, fuck cops, fuck all cops. But how, <laughs> how is, how is going to talk to a police officer going to do anything, right? Like we, we know what the body and the brain needs after serious trauma. We need therapy. We need community. We need care. That's not to me and the kind of survivor that I am. That's not, that's not the care that I needed. And it's not the care that I, that I seek now. And I don't even think we started having these conversations until after Me Too happened. And still now the first impulse is let's go to the police. You know, let's go get a kit. Let's bring it, bring it back to this person. And right, Allegra, for, for you and, and so many people, that, that's when the gaslighting begins, right? Here's all the reasons it doesn't count. And if, and if the police are, and the law are the only people who can validate my trauma, then if I can't remember who violated me in this way, does it exist at all? Right? Like the erasure is like immediate, right? Like that's what we've been taught. And for me, because this happened when I was so young, my mind just did cartwheels over and over and over. And obviously for someone with OCD, you just, you hit a wall again and again and again. And I it couldn't, I couldn't make sense of, of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now. So it's like, it, you know, it, it takes a long time. Wow. I also think the idea of having to go prove yourself, which is kind of what it feels like with like a kid is just fucking awful. It's like, nobody believes you unless there's this like DNA evidence on you. And that is absolute gaslighting. Right. 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 And like, I just, you know, I can't help, but bring it back to like sexuality too, of like, um, you know, especially bisexuality. Oh, you've never, you've never dated someone who's not a cis man. Then, you know, how are you by prove it? You know, like that's fucking crazy. That's crazy. You know, you would never tell a little girl, you know, go prove you're straight. Right. We, we we find out a little girl has a crush on a boy. So exciting. Your first crush, you know, that's so amazing. We don't say, you know, go, go kiss, <laughs> prove it to me. You know, it, it's, it's really bizarre how much our society demands evidence for our, our identities to exist. It's, it's just horrifying to me. It really is. And I think like the gray also that I wanted to touch on from like a therapist perspective, which you did, I don't know if you knew the name of this, but something called repetition compulsion where Sav went back to her rapist and had sex with him again. And that fucks with you. That feels like another form of internal gaslighting. Well, if I went and had sex with him again, could it even have been rape? Do you know what repetition compulsion is like as a psychological term, or are you just so smart that you wrote about it? Not knowing. I didn't know the term. This is making me feel really good, really vindicated because (laughs) this, so I, I don't, I don't feel like this is a hard thing for me to say, but 
this, that is what happened to me. That is, that is also why I hit such a wall because who sleeps with their abuser again? Who, who does that? Right. That's the narrative I told myself. And obviously I had a lot of therapy and a lot of help getting through that very specific roadblock. And it's only been since I've had early readers talk to me about the book that I realized that so many people told themselves it didn't count because they did it again, because they tried to fix it. You know, we, we try to fix it. So is that what the compulsion is? Yeah, that's repetition compulsion. And I did something similar, not with like my rapist, but someone else. And I asked my therapist, like, I don't understand why I basically just went in to this guy's house and said, like, you can do this to me. And she said, it's called repetition compulsion. You do something over again that was traumatizing to master it or to go back and fix it somehow. That is a very real thing psychologically. So I think you gave people a name for something that they had probably never heard of. Yeah. I mean, God, I wish so badly that I had known that as, you know, a teen. Oh, I'm emotional. Um, But it's just, this is so powerful because you, Allegra, are a therapist and like you might have a client who comes in and you're going to be able to say immediately, oh yeah, that's what that is. Like, that's so painful, but that's normal. Like, that's what your brain is doing. Your brain is trying to protect you and save you. And when you, I mean, at any age, if you do that, it's completely okay. And it's totally fine. But when you don't understand why so easy to just tell yourself that you're such a horrible person, you know, and it was so important for me to write that very specific survivor experience because I've never seen it anywhere else. Ever. I haven't either. I've not in any book ever. You are a first for me. So that's amazing. Not that it happened to you, of course, but that you were shedding light on this. Right. I I just, I had to, and you know, some, it's, it's really amazing to be able to have this conversation with both of you because I have had a lot of early readers, right. But like a lot of people, are part of like, you know, the, the sort of like the, the program with, um, the publishing houses and they get like, they get early books and they'll write a great review of my book. And I'm so grateful, but it'll just say sort of like, you know, trigger warning for, for trauma or like, you know, Haley Jacobson depicts trauma in the most like gentle and thoughtful way, which like, wow, that feels so good to hear. But, but I, I need to talk about what I wrote about, right? Like, like, I hope that these are the conversations that I get to have or that other people get to have about my book. I think I've had a little bit of a fear that no one's going to want to talk about this part. And so it's very validating to be doing that with, with both of you. That was an important, such an important part for both of us. Like, wow. This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live, face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. 
To find out more about NoCD, visit NoCD.com to book a free 15-minute call. Okay, can we can we move to the friendship part? Yeah, <laughs> talk. Let's talk. So okay. So why was writing about the best friend dynamics and the pressure of best friends forever, which, oh my God, we'll talk about that after you share. But why was that so important to you, Haley? Because I think that we have been internally fucked by the messages about best friendship. I think anyone assigned female at birth has been told that you got to find your bestie, your soulmate, your person. And we are never taught that there's going to be any conflict. We're not prepared for any sort of rupture. And more than anything, we are taught to seek out sameness. That's the prize. We're the same person. We have the same mind. I know you better than I know myself. These messages are loopy. They're insane. (laughs) Guess who fell for them? Me over and over and over again. Um, And it makes it all the more complicated when you are gay, but that (laughs) is entirely other conversation. But I, especially as an only child, I have never, ever experienced such a such profound heartbreak as, as losing someone that I promised forever to. I'm pretty good at romantic breakups. I mean, it sucks and it's, it feels like absolute shit, but we're prepared for breakups our whole lives. We open our Cosmo magazine and five tips to get over a breakup or how to prevent a breakup, you know, communication, this therapy, that like we're told 50% divorce rates, Here's how to avoid that. Like, have you ever seen like, here's how to avoid rupture with your best friend so that you can continue being BFFs forever? No, no, we are not taught that. And so I I feel like I lived in 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 sort of this like secret shame for a long time that I didn't un- that I couldn't keep a best friend, that I had these all-consuming relationships with other women who felt like you know, the other half of me, and then they would explode and then they would be gone. And it was just so heart-wrenching. Yet another thing that was never modeled to me as something that could happen. And I started to talk about it on social media a little bit a couple of years ago. And of course the DMs came flooding in, you know, people who just have this immense grief from these friendships that that have been lost and over and over again, you know, I don't know how it happened. It happened so suddenly, like it just, everything went wrong all at once. And I know that it's actually, it's not that it builds over time, the tension, it starts to build, you know, but we go back to sameness, sameness, sameness. We, I can't name this. You're my forever person, you know, and it's longevity in friendships exists when there's a lot of room to grow. And when individuality is what is glorified and not this sort of like enmeshment of Mm -hmm. self, like it's 
Crazy. So another theme that I was like, I'd like to write about this theme. And I plopped it in there. I love that. I resonated a lot with that theme. And also I'm an only child. And I feel like I had imaginary friends growing up. I don't know if you did, Haley. Good, thank God. Allegra, I told her about the other day. She was like, oh no. <laughs> Listen, honey, I was like having my naked math teacher pop into my mind as a kid. So <laughs> things were weirder for me. I can tell but you. But I went from like best friend to best friend to best friend. And then the longest one I had, high school, and then we kind of broke up going into college. She wanted me to go to her college. And I and I went to musical theater school too. And I ended up lying and saying my flight was canceled but I never went to audition for the college because I yeah you didn't know how I felt so trapped by that friendship and I've never ever seen female friendship written about how you did and it made me feel like it was okay and that it was normal to go a separate way like you feel I used to be like what's wrong with me why can't I come with me yeah yeah nothing Nothing. And, and, and the, the sad thing is that I've learned now is, are there ways to prevent that? Yeah, there are. It's called conflict resolution. But if it, oftentimes it is too late, if it's not built into the friendship from the beginning, if it's not a value of the friendship, then you're choked. Like you're, you're choked by your best friend necklace. You know what I mean? Like, because this to, to slap on this idea of forever, that is the tallest fucking order, you know? Like, and we do it so quickly with friends. It takes so much longer for us to do that with romantic relationships, you know? Are they the one? Like this, you know, the back and forth forever. Like also, you know, me and you are in ROCD. Like, will we ever know? Probably not. But with a best friend, just like, yeah, you're my forever person. Yeah. yeah. Friend, you know? so important that you wrote about this and like all the girlies were I mean we're all we're all feeling so much less alone Haley like you you speak about things that are you spoke about like five things in this book that I haven't read about in other books like okay icon like come on come on have you ever thought about casting this like with actors yeah um I so I love when people do like a fan cast but in my mind is empty. Okay. <laughs> but if other people have ideas, I love that. Um, I, it's actually so interesting. I don't know if y'all do this, but my mom told me recently that when she starts a book, she has to like conjure up, a, a an actor to like play every part. And then I talked to some other people and they're very similar. Like they have to like sort of imagine someone. I don't really, I don't think I do that so much. Like I think when I'm reading other people's books, like I do get an idea of what someone looks like. It's not super specific, but if the, if the author starts describing them in a different way that I'm picturing, I just ignore it. I just I have to go with what what comes up for me, but with my own characters, like I don't, I like, I see them almost like as if my glasses were off. I have very bad vision, but like I there's like a blurry outline of like what they look like, but I like, I know them, I hear them and I, I can see them, but like, they're not like high def. Totally. Oh, I like that. There's room to like for interpretation. Yeah. Neither here nor there, but I know a lot of people are pissed about the Colleen Hoover casting. 
And then like the wardrobe keeps getting worse. That would be my thing. If I wrote a book and then somebody cast it, like not how I wanted, I would be livid. Well, I would, my biggest thing is like, if they tried to cast it with straight people, I would be like, yeah. beyond. I would, it would, yeah. Yeah. But that's so fun. Um, I could try to think. Of no, think about it and we'll think about it and then we'll, we'll post. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Cause I have, I have some ideas there. I'm not in final casting yet. I'm like calling people in. I love that. Okay. Amazing. I love that too. One more question about the relationship between Izzy and Sav. So I was horrified. Aaron was horrified. The whole cyberbullying happened. The harassment happened. And then essentially they become friends again. Why was that important for you to write? I think that it's yet another example of Sav just surviving. You know, she's in high school still. Like that's the extent of her world. That's the microcosm. She can't even really see the future on the horizon and all she knows is Izzy. That's that's her blueprint, you know? And she'll do anything to get Izzy back. And I think also, you know, part of it is Sav doesn't understand at that point that she didn't do anything wrong. She does believe she betrayed Izzy. She she does believe that she is the one who's at fault. She did a bad thing. She did something she wasn't supposed to do. She hasn't metabolized the the assault. She's put it behind her because the second trauma, the trauma of losing Izzy becomes the one that comes to the forefront. It's going to be years before Sav comes to, you know, it's not until her freshman year until she goes to that like mandated therapy that that she starts to understand that maybe what happened wasn't what she wanted. So yeah, it is horrifying, but also yeah, it's real. real. It's real. Yeah. That, and, and especially when, when you're a teenager and, and ev- everything is this, like this, this hierarchy, right? Like in, in, in high school, especially you're shoved into this place with people that you're supposed to just get along with. That's why college is so amazing because no one is saying that you have to get along with that person, you know, in your orientation class in college, right? There's thousands of other people to go meet. And, oh, there are actually people who are signing up for the same classes as you. There's actually a chance you're interested in the same things. Usually high school is just based on like the town you grew up in, you know? And so the mind of a teenager just going to do what they need to do to survive. God, that was tough. Yeah, I'm thinking about just like the cyber bully in peace. And like, I was like very worried for Sav. Like I, I was worried she wasn't going to get through it. I don't know if I could have gotten through that to be alienated like that when you've already gone through trauma. Like, how did you decide? I mean, you decided to, it, it, yeah, it came to you. But like, was there a world in which she wasn't okay? Pretty unimaginable, right? But you make it through. The development actually happening in your brain from like 15 to 17. Yeah. It's it's one of the worst times to go through trauma. So. Yeah. 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 It is one of the worst times to go through trauma because that's a time in your life where you're supposed to be a kid. You're a child. Right. And that's the, the thing, though, about teenage girls is teenage girls don't want to admit that they're children. Right. Like all they want is to be adults 
at least that's the kind of teenage girl that I was. And I look back and I, you know, without, without question, I, I, I know I was a baby. I was a child. I was, I was a little girl, like, and, um, I wasn't an adult and I needed a lot of protection and care. And also I needed a lot of room to make mistakes and not be punished for mistakes. And I think the, the, the hardest thing, you know, for me looking back at having, been traumatized as a teenager is, is having my innocence taken from me, my, my sense of play, my sense of sort of wonder, you know, you have to grow up so fast when that happens. And that's also why writing Sav's college world was so important because it's so much about play and fun and exploration. And I really do believe that we can grow back into innocence. And that's, you know, why her relationship with Wes is so important. And, and also queerness is often a second puberty for a lot of people. So you get that, that other layer of, of exploration and trying things for the first time, just like, you know, we get to when we're actual teenagers. So I texted Haley when I, or I DM'd you when I first started reading it. And I was like, this is medium Al, like medium Al would fucking love this. I've played her a couple times, but she, the awkwardness and the excitement and like the first crush that you have, like your first queer crush, my whole body like tingles and reading your book. Like I was laugh out, like you're funny, Haley. The part with the, the part with the chair, I'm getting a, a oh chair. Oh my God. <laughs> For my, for my grandma. I'm like, wait, what? Like, that shit is funny. Like, we are all that awkward, that awkward college kid, like, just yeah. house vomit. I know. And all those scenes, like, I promise you every scene that you laugh, I was writing laughing because I'm always <laughs> trying to myself laugh. And every time I write a really hard scene, I write a scene that is just full of laughter and joy and funny and silly because, like, I get to have that. Like that's the gift that I, that I give myself, but I love hearing that I'm funny. Oh my God. You're a funny, funny girl. And like, we are, we are sad. Like it made yeah. me feel so seen like my little awkward in love, just like, um, yeah. yeah. Cause she just can't, she can't hide it with this person. She can't pretend to be cool. Yeah. yeah. She loses her cool. Well, we all do. And I love that. That's like, I'd rather see someone lose their shit and feel than like be cool. Like, I don't give a fuck. Right. Can you talk to us about the relationship between Sav and Lara, 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 Lara? Yeah. Well, I would love to, but I'd love to know what, what did you think about Lara? At first I was like massive cringe, massive cringe girl. Like, just didn't get it. Like, I just felt like white girl who it just like really just didn't get it, didn't get anything. And then I feel like as the story unfolded, you could kind of see maybe like why she didn't get it. Like, she almost probably didn't want to admit things to herself. And then also it tied in like the whole idea. And we're going to ask you about this as well, that like you can always be different from the person that you were yesterday. I've grown so much since I was in high school. Like I probably was that cringe person at one point because I was raised in that way. That's like, that's literally what I was taught. 
So I feel like we, like Laura, Laura was cringe at first, but then we got to see her kind of like fully form. And that is what it means to be human. That's what I took from it is like, I'm not saying she was right by any means, but we all get to where we get to like through different routes, through different journeys. And I love like that filing cabinet metaphor of like, everyone has their own filing cabinet. They store, they whatever, like at their own time. That is what I saw in Laura. Like, I don't actually think she was a terrible person. I think she was like clueless and having to like come into her own and to like face things. I think that she had never really wanted to, but that was my take on it. I love that she had the opportunity to change. Like she also is finding herself and learning. And I love that she wasn't just like this bad person that stayed bad. Like she might've been ignorant, but she had the opportunity to grow. And I also loved that Sav ended up coming to her rescue and that the, the way they ended that relationship, like with Sav being like on the phone with her, was her boyfriend? Yeah. I was like, yes. And I was like, this is how I wanted this to end. And finally her last project, I was like, yes. Like, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad that that's your both of your read on Lara. I think that something that I always have to remind myself as a woman is that I gotta watch myself on the quick judgment of the person sitting next to me because usually it's just what I'm really scared of in myself. We are yeah. all ten degrees away from Lara, baby. Like there's a couple things that rerouted my life that got me to, to, to be the woman that I am today. And perhaps it would have happened sooner if other things had happened earlier and perhaps it would have happened later. Um, I do believe I would have always gotten here to who I am, but, um, I think that Lara represents a lot of things to Sav. Lara represents who Sav might've, might've been if she didn't, um, you know, choose the college that she chose or meet the people that she met early on. If she didn't go through the trauma that made her grow up fast. I mean, there's a lot of elements of Lara that freak her out because she knows that like she could, she could be like her. Um, And also Lara represents the parts of Izzy, especially in the beginning of the book, before we see her experience any growth, Lara represents the parts of Izzy that, um, Sav is, is really fighting against looking at that. Those are the things that are making her still, or if she, if she sees those things, then she's going to have to face how different she and Izzy really are. Um, And so in the beginning of the book that Lara is holding up a mirror to Sav that she really doesn't want to look in. I didn't even think about the similarity between those. Yeah. Hundred percent. it all figured out. Yeah. And I love what you said about like the non-judgment, Haley, or at least trying not to judge. Because like I didn't want to admit this five minutes ago, but like I probably was Lara. You know, like maybe I said that. I don't remember what I said. Like we've all been that person to a certain degree. I have said cringe things. I said mean things to people in high school. I wrote things on people's Facebook walls I never should have written. You know, like I was traumatized by other people. We've all been that person. And I think we should all be allowed that space to grow. And I fucking love that you had Laura go through that process. Like it, I felt validated just in like, 
I'm not going to judge the Allegra I was at 15. Like I was traumatized myself. We're all allowed to grow. Which is also why, why it was important for me to write Izzy's story too, because Izzy was also 15 when she made some big decisions that hurt another person. So I really hope that no one reads this book and sees Izzy as an antagonist because it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think some people, some people need to hone in on Lara and some people need to hone in on Izzy. And I think that's really interesting because I wrote them as sort of like, it's so little, but like, you know, Sav at some point, I think talks about how there are like replicas of Lara in, you know, in the sorority world, right. Like of walking around campus, like just sort of replicas of each other. Um, And that's what Izzy is doing over at her school too, right? Like you could plop Izzy into that, into that group of girls. Um, But you could also take Sav and put her in there too. You know, like it's, there's, it's just varying degrees. I think something that I'm so passionate about as a writer is taking stereotypes and cracking them open. Like I'll, at least I'll never write a woman as all of one thing, especially not as a villain. I don't think I will ever, ever vilify a woman in a book. A man, sure. But <laughs> yes. there are so few men in this book. So it's, it's not really about that. But I love a good stereotype. I want to, I want to take the sorority girl and say like, what's going on in there? You know, mm. um, what's going and, on in there? <laughs> yeah. Like what's happening? Cause, because yeah, I mean, and yeah, I mean, as a former mean girl, because I went through a lot of trauma and I've been really lucky to be able to grow into the person that I am. But I think, you know, growing up, I didn't think that I was uh, allowed to be a nice person after I had done a what I thought was a very bad thing. You know, it was only until I was able to look back and say, wow, I didn't do anything bad at all that I was able to come into myself as a, a, a very soft, sweet, empathetic woman that, that I, that I, that I always have been, but sometimes we choose meanness as like a, a badge that we want to wear. Oh, yeah. This know? has been incredible. We have two more questions if you will allow us. Yes, absolutely. Um, so first is the publishing process. I know that you got quite a few no's before you got this like fucking fantastic. Yes. Yeah. What was that like for you? Like walk everybody through receiving no's and having to like live with that disappointment. Yeah. I think I got like 35 rejections from uh, editors before my yes, I got two yeses and one yes did not go all the way through because, and I kind of love it because they didn't really know how to like, they didn't, they didn't feel like the age of my novel was right because it had like such adult themes with young people. And that kills me because like <laughs> young people go through adult things all the fucking it's time. like the whole fucking point of the book. So they exactly. missed the whole point yeah. of the book. They missed the whole point of the book. So that was, that was, <laughs> that was good to not have that go through. Um, And of course with my team, it was never even a question. We never even talked about that, but um, yeah, I went through a, big series of no's. And really, once again, I came back to my ERP values and something that I did during that time was I started to really explore my value of 
learning what kind of person I am in the wake of rejection. What is my relationship with rejection? What kind of person do I want to be existing inside of a a dynamic of rejection? How do I want to look back at this time in the way that I behaved in the way that I um, reacted? How do I want to sit with myself in it? How do I want to hold myself in it? Um, And so I kind of like made it a little bit of a project, I would say of like, this is, this is sometimes what I'll do is like, I'll, I'll kind of like make myself put like the machine of capitalism aside for a second and all of my big, big desires of success and sort of my hustle and grind businesswoman ethic that, that I have. And I'm so proud of, and I'm like, okay, in my life, in the, in the, in the, the large span of my life, what is the class that I'm currently taking? And that at that time, I was like, I'm taking a class on rejection. Like I am a student of rejection right now. And so I think one thing I said to myself was like, I want to have, I want to have a good story to tell. So if it was a yes, right out of the gate, maybe this wouldn't have as much like texture. And that's pretty full circle in this moment, right? Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying it was a yes right out of the gate. I I sit here and I say I got 35 before I got a yes. Like, so that's one thing that like kind of kept me going a little bit. Um, and then another thing was like, I, I wouldn't do this in the future, but like at the time I, my agent decided to send me some of the reasons that I was getting a no. And, um, it really all boiled down to like, this isn't the right book for us. Like this isn't the right book for me or, or I don't know how to sell this book and whatever. And so it was never like this book is bad or shows no promise. It was just like, it just, it wasn't the right book for those people. And yeah, 35 people feel, it feels like a lot, but then like, I already have like a hundred nice reviews on Goodreads. So those were all like, those, those are the right people, right? Like books aren't for everyone, especially like not people who read books all day long. I mm-hmm. forgot. Where did you, you went to school for musical theater, right? No, no, no. Can't sing. Baby girl can't sing. Can't oh, dance. I, I, in my head, I thought you went to school for musical theater this whole time. Um, no, I, I have my, my BFA in, in theater arts. Uh, so it was acting, playwriting, directing, and um, producing. Okay, that's more, that makes more sense. I just have a BFA in just musical theater. I was going to ask you how you transitioned from the theater world into the writing world, or but it was already. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was all playwriting. It was, yeah. it was like, I fell so, so in love with playwriting at college, in college. And I mean, you can tell from my books how dialogue heavy they are. Yes. Like I basically, everything around dialogue and I very often write dialogue first and everything else around it. Like, like my love for playwriting runs so deep. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really like, but I, but I always wrote, like, I always, always wrote. And in college, my mom was like, don't forget you're a writer. And I was like, shut up. I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be a famous actress. And then I realized um, I don't enjoy acting at all. <laughs> Agreed. Acting is an interesting career choice. Is there any playwriting like in your future? I feel like I would die to be in a play of yours. Like, please remember me when you're 
I will. I will. Erin cast herself in like everything. It's iconic. Every book. Was, she's like, I'm the lead, by the way. That's good. <laughs> well, I am Sap. I was going to wait till the end, but I'm, I'm Sap. Um, I love you being Sap. Um, look, I, I've been saying this so much. Like I realize now that, you know, because I ran a theater company for five years before the pandemic hit. I love theater so much. And like, it is one of my biggest, biggest, biggest passions. I just think it's financially, it's so, so difficult. And now for the first time, I see a route that can eventually get me to a place where I will be able to write plays and, you know, put them up and not really have to worry so much about whether or not that's like for profit, you know, like, I, so it's definitely a long game. I'm I'm not, I'm not in a place where like, I can just, you know, afford to rent out the cherry lane for a month, but that is like a huge, huge part of the plan. Like as if, if I can, if I, if the route can go, people recognize my writing in a larger sense through my books. And then they realize that I also love theater and I love to write plays and they want to do something with me to make that happen. Or if, you know, I sell the movie rights or whatever, you know, show rights to this, because I would love for there to be an adaptation of old enough, but I'm just not a film person. Like I'm not a film and theater or a film and TV person. I just, I am a theater person. So um, that would be so, so exciting, but like, it, I wouldn't get my hands dirty in the same way that it would if it, like just write up another full length play and put it up. And so I keep putting that out there, you know, every time anyone asks me about this stuff, because it's, it's part of the dream. I yeah. have no doubt this this or another one of your work it will be a play and a miniseries and a movie like I've like no doubt like you heard it here and it's gonna happen it would look so good as a series I really I mean I hope so I feel like that too but that's unfortunately part of the industry like the way that my team is so reluctant to talk about any film and TV stuff, not, not at all because they don't think it's going to happen, but because there's such a sort of weird relationship between publishing and film and TV, because you can sell a right, the rights to your book and it'll never get made into anything. And then, you know, people have your book and then it's just done. And so, um, they, they approach it very, um, tenderly with me, which is fine. I love, I, I mean, I love my agent and I trust that everything that she tells me is for my own benefit. So, <laughs> but, but I think, I think it'll happen. So what's next for you, Haley? Yeah, what's you know next? Me? Where can we find you? What's going on? You can find me on my book tour. Um, Old Enough comes out June 20th and then I'll be in Boston and I'll be in DC and I'll be in Chicago and LA. Um, and then I don't know. I don't know what life is going to really look like. Um, I probably will start. I mean, I've already started writing another book. It's just been on pause. Um, we'll see if that book morphs into anything else. Um, I hope that it will. And I don't know. I don't know what my, my life is going to look like, but as always, you can find me on Instagram, um, as I've been there for 10 years and I'll just keep being there for many more. And TikTok, you are blowing up on TikTok. Oh yeah, I do dabble. I definitely dabble in there too. You can find me there, but it all goes back to the Instagram, you know? Oh, oh, also I teach, 
I teach, I teach a writing That's class. A big thing. I That's took a big all these classes and they are fucking phenomenal. Yeah. I love teaching. And again, all the details on my my writing with confidence classes are on on my Instagram. You can only sign up through my newsletter, which I send out very sparingly. But I love teaching. So I don't know why I forgot to say that, but I literally like live and die to teach. So I don't know. <laughs> Please take my class. <laughs> I love that. I want to yeah, take, take your class. It's amazing. Bye, Sad Girls. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe and follow our show. It's the way that we can get the word out about our Sad Girl podcast and more Sad Girls can find their community. And if you'd like to follow us on other platforms, we're on Instagram at Sad Girls Who Read and TikTok at Sad Girls Good Books. We love you, Sad Girls.